Welcome everyone to the Tallgrass Talk. I am Luke Zilverberg. I am your host of this podcast. And for this podcast, we are going to be talking about the Tallgrass Prairie and how it is so critical and all the ecosystem services it provides, such as habitat for wildlife, pollination of crops, soil stability, carbon storage, flood attenuation, and just biodiversity of all classes of organisms. But along with the multiple benefits to the environment, the Tallgrass Prairie can provide landowners with economic stability, especially on marginal acres. And so for our first episode, we're going to have the president of Ecosun Prairie Farms, Carter Johnson, come in and talk about their Prairie Farm project, which ran from 2008 to 2014. And he has a tremendous background in ecology and has traveled across the country and world researching a variety of topics. But after all that, he has landed himself in South Dakota. And today, Carter's going to talk about EcoSun's mission, results from the Prairie Farm Project a few years back. And Carter, we are very happy to have you on, and you are our first guest. So I'll let you talk a little bit about yourself, and, and let's get things started. Thank you, Luke. Uh, glad to be your first victim. Uh, I, I can't think of a subject I'd rather talk about than the grassland ecosystem. So I appreciate the opportunity to sit down and and talk about these uh, very exciting things that have happened in the past and I think uh, the opportunities that we have for the future. Uh, I was born and raised in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. My uh, family had a a business, uh, Johnson Hardware and Sporting Goods, so I was in retail for the first part of my life, first 20 years, spending about all my time in the store selling fishing rods and shotguns and repairing outboard motors and selling boats and all of those uh, very exciting things. Uh, we also uh, were an outdoor family. Uh, we, we were uh, hunters and fishermen and campers and hikers. We didn't have a lot of time for that, but we spent some time fishing for trout in the Black Hills and uh, the pheasant hunting in, around Sioux Falls and waterfall hunting uh, in, in lakes and sloughs from Chamberlain to, to back to, to Sioux Falls. So we spent a lot of time outdoors and it was those visits with my dad and my two brothers uh, that really sealed my interest in nature. And, uh, it, and it's kept me uh, as a nature lover and now a nature scientist uh, for the last 50 years. So uh, once I graduated from Augustana College and I uh, retired from the retail business, I went into graduate school uh, in ecology and environment at North Dakota State and uh, then moved on to uh, research in Tennessee at Oak Ridge National Lab. And I spent 12 years at Virginia Tech after that. And I came back to South Dakota uh, in uh, 1989 at SDSU as a department head and as a faculty member uh, with research projects mostly on large rivers like the Missouri and the Platte River and the Snake River in Idaho, uh, looking at prairie wetlands and the climate change and other kinds of uh, projects. But the, the prairie project came along a little bit later in my career, uh, and that's something I guess we'll talk about here in a minute. But that's my, that's my background uh, uh, in, in this whole business. So. Yeah, so you've been all over the place, all the way over to Virginia Tech, mm-hmm. now all the way back in South Dakota. Did you? What did you study when you were at Virginia Tech? 
Uh, actually, I did a lot of studying back here. Okay. Uh, I was traveling a lot from there to here. And I was uh, studying, we had projects on wetlands uh, for the Corps of Engineers. We worked on the Missouri River. In fact, I, I had, I've had 40 years of work on the Missouri River, uh, looking at the effects of dams on the riparian uh, forest community, primarily on, on cottonwood regeneration. So uh, I went back and forth quite a few times. I studied blue jays uh, when I was at Virginia Tech, which was a fascinating uh, study about seed dispersal, acorn dispersal, and oak trees and so on. Uh, but uh, when I got here, I looked at the prairie situation and said, boy, we're just about out of prairie. It's unfortunate. This is the, the, the plant community that built our soils. That's why we have the tremendous agriculture potential we have here is the, is the organic matter content that was due to the, the perennial grasses that uh, make up that community. And I said, that's something I want to take a look at and see if there's some way to get more grassland back in our landscape. And I believe you were telling me earlier that your family was some of the first ones to settle here in eastern South Dakota and till up the tall grass prairie and put it into crop production. It was my, the, the first settlers here were great, it was a great grandfather. Great grandfather. Named Telef Geraldson. Okay. And he, he started at about 1869 and on a, took a homestead near the James River Right where the James River, right where Highway 81 crosses the James River is where that farm was established. And of course, the idea was to change the land in a way that they remembered from Europe. They were going to grow wheat and those kinds of crops, monoculture. So they got rid of the prairie and, and went ahead and, and after over time they did, and, and went into to crop, uh, more standard crop production. And then your uncle? Yeah, my great uncle. Great uncle. I'm then, older than you think. <laughs> your great uncle <laughs> took took went out of production and, and brought it back into grass farming. So maybe talk yeah, about he, that. Uh, well, of course, he'd gone through the 1930s too, okay. and that was the tough time Dust for ball. anybody that was farming crops. And uh, I'm sure grassland was uh, not as productive either during the 1930s as uh, as it would have been otherwise. But he he saw the the prices of equipment going up and the acreage increasing for corn and soybeans and wheat and didn't really want to go to the bank and take out a big loan. And so he said, I'm going to go back to grassland and, and become a rancher uh, in an area that was mostly farmers. So that was quite a, quite a strange thing to do. But uh, he spent the rest of his life on that farm and did well. And uh, many farmers around him with uh, traditional crops did not do so well at certain times. So you have to say that it actually worked quite well for him Yeah, to do that. So then in 2007, you and a couple of SDSU colleagues, professors got together and came up with EcoSun Prairie Farms. Mm -hmm. And that was branching back to your thoughts about your great uncle and, and um, how he converted land back and then you wanted to do the same thing. Yeah, we thought that, that he, uh, that example, might uh, be a, a starting point for us. Maybe we could uh, do something bigger. Uh, and I, 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 as I said earlier, uh, we decided to have a talk and a bunch of agronomists and ecologists got together and said, well, what's the next step here? What can we do to make farming more profitable and better for the environment? And at that time in 2007 or eight, prices were low. Uh, uh, the farm community was in, in tough shape. And of course, it's been in tough shape many years since that time as well. Now it seems to be, be better. Uh, 
But uh, why can't we do better on the best soils in the world for agriculture and the best climate for those soils? And some very hardworking people, why can't we make it more profitable and not have to be so heavily subsidized? This has got to, it's got to be something that works better. And maybe we never should have plowed up all of our grassland to begin with. And had we thought about that a little bit more, thought about ways we could make more income from grassland, uh, that might have kept the prairie uh, more alive than it, than it is today. So we thought, well, instead of just coming up with a new soybean or a new corn variety and making incremental changes, we'll try to do something big. So we, uh, we looked for a farm that we could, could either buy or rent and then convert all the cropland to, back to grassland, to the kind of grassland that would have occurred there 150 years ago restore wetlands if there are wetlands there. Most wetlands and most farms have been removed or, or affected. So if we do all of this, and uh, can we actually, we don't want the environment will be improved. We don't know about the economics. So can we test out some things? Let's, let's try to market these products and see how well we can do. So that was the original, the germ of the idea. Okay. And we found a farm near Coleman, South Dakota, uh, where we could where we could do that for a seven year experiment. Yeah, and that was the Prairie Farm Project, correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you guys started the Prairie Farm Project in two thousand eight, and that ran for six, seven, eight years, and and uh, you guys had quite the quite the project and and research that you guys did out there. But what were some things that you learned, or some of the main takeaways? I know I just watched your your film. They created a film on the the Prairie Farm Project. And um, Carter can maybe talk about that later, but one of the things you mentioned in there is the main goal of the project was to find a balance between the environment and the economics. And so what are some of the ways that you would go about finding that perfect balance, or maybe perfect's not the right word, but what would be a way to find that balance between the environment and the economics? Well, it, it really depends on uh, doing the doing something nobody had ever done before, and that's to actually not only uh, get the grassland back, but figure out how to market products from that grassland. And a lot of people have, have put grassland back on their landscape, but they've not really investigated the extent to which income could be generated from that at the same time to cover the cost for restoration and for the uh, life lifeblood of the farm in the future. So it was really the economic side. We were pretty sure that that the environment is all going to improve by doing this. The soil erosion is going to stop. Uh, there'll be more, more percolation of water into the groundwater rather than running off. So we'll be protecting streams. There's more carbon going to be accumulated. Instead of losing carbon, which we have been doing in our fields, we're going to gain carbon back. The wildlife is going to reappear. And uh, all of these benefits that, uh, that Luke mentioned, these ecosystem services are going to improve. Uh, the hard part would be figuring out how to make a living from this farm. So we decided to focus on three income streams. One would be marketing uh, hay, uh, the production of tall grass prairie on good soils is quite high. Uh, three to four dry tons per acre is quite common on these good soils. And this is an interesting point. Um, the prairie we have left now is mostly on very marginal, rocky sites that really cannot be farmed. Uh, and as a result, because it's on poor soils, they don't, the plants don't grow very tall. The big blue stem may be two feet high. And uh, 
so a farmer would say, well, I can't make any living from this grass. How could I do it? It's not enough production. And uh, but what, what we found out by putting uh, grassland on the best soils is it's quite amazing production. We have grasses eight feet tall. Wow. And, and cord grass heads that's 10 feet, 10 feet tall. I mean, it's an incredible, and, and, and nobody's seen that before because all of the good soils are in cropland. And all the poor soils has where the grasslands left. So this was a reversal, and it was quite an eye-opener to see what those good soils would do. I mean, some of the reports back in the day of people on horseback 100 years ago couldn't even see each other, and they're riding through a tall grass prairie. They had to stand up on their saddle to see the person next to mm -hmm. them because the grasses were so tall. I know, and now we're down to 1% left or 2%, yeah. 3% yeah. in a grid yeah. system, so completely changed. Um, from from back then. So the, so this uh, uh, grassland has market value for forage, so that would be one income stream, and uh, another income stream would be seed. So we can uh, we can produce large amounts of seed, native native plant seed that can be marketed by a number of companies such as Milburn Seeds here in Brookings, uh, and that, that are used for CRP plantings and and other wildlife plantings right now. And if we were to expand grassland a lot, there would be a continuing market for that seed to get new grassland established. The third income would be uh, grass-fed beef. Uh, there's been a lot of interest in people getting, eating beef that comes from animals that uh, stay on grassland and not, are, not generate, are not grown in CAFOs. Uh, and the, the quality of the animals and, and the uh, is, is, is better on, on grassland and uh, it's leaner, the meat is leaner and it has higher uh, nutrient content and uh, so that was the third source. What we did is we had uh, a ranch in western South Dakota, the Mortensen Ranch, which uh, produces, I think he has about a thousand uh, uh, herd, a herd of a thousand animals and uh, he brought over 75 to our farm and we would raise those during the growing season. So a stocker type operation. Yeah. And then we would market that at the end of that second year as grass-fed beef. And it's incredible. <laughs> that meat is absolutely incredible. I, that's a, the, the thing that I, hurt me the most to, <laughs> to uh, finish our project was it wouldn't be any more grass-fed beef. Oh, <laughs> so, and, and you sold that to some of the local places in, in Brookings here, we, didn't you? And in Sioux Falls. And in Sioux Falls, yeah, okay. Yeah, it was, uh, it was really, really good stuff. So anyway, the, those three things there were the, the, the income side of our project. There could be others if you were doing this uh, and with other folks who had other interests. Uh, there could be a, a fee for hunting charge, which is another way of another source of income. Uh, as I said before, there would be uh, corn. There would be uh, carbon credits that could be uh, purchased, uh, or there could be income that a farm, farmer would get by storing more carbon in in soils. So there's other income streams that could be added to the three that we uh, came up with. Yeah. But, so we didn't cover all the bases about income and then horticultural potential for uh, all this, all these good soils, uh, broccoli and and uh, and other potatoes and things that could be produced for. I mean, Sioux Falls is two hundred thousand people now, and so that's a pretty big market. 
yeah. uh, for for food. And I think there's a good chance that uh, developing horticultural components to these prairie farms would be another source of income. Yeah. You mentioned carbon credits a little bit. And um, for the majority of the people listening, I'm not sure if you know what carbon credits are, but maybe you could talk a little bit about that and, <clears throat> and how they're bought and sold by different companies or, or farmers or... Yeah, maybe explain a little bit about carbon credits. Uh, the, the current market is more of a private market. It's not really uh, government controlled. Uh, some people want that to happen through USDA sometime, but now it's primarily uh, organizations that are uh, producing carbon dioxide, which is contributing to the rise in carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, uh, are looking for ways of offsetting that uh, input. And so they are looking for places where carbon can be stored. And one way that carbon can be stored is in soils and uh, grassland and where grassland is managed in part to store more carbon in soil. So you could pay a rancher that had a way of gaining carbon in his ranch, you could pay the him for that uh, and offsetting your costs, your costs of uh, CO2 to the environment. And that's the way it works now. There's a lot of private kind of operations that are going on, companies that want to have a better image, that they don't want to be contributing to the climate change problem. So they will, they're willing to, to pay uh, someone to offset their cost. So, well, well, yes, we are putting more CO2 in the atmosphere, but we're storing more over here. So the net effect is zero. Okay. So, you know, don't be too hard on us. So they're not required to do that. They're doing that no, for a better that's, image. That's right. That's and, right. And do the, let's say they're buying a ranch for storage. Does that ranch have to be close proximity, or can that be seven thousand miles oh, away? And could be in another country. Okay. So yeah, yeah. but the, the difficulty is uh, is monitoring and and knowing that what you're paying for is really what you're getting. Yeah. And I I should say that one of our papers that we produced on the Prairie Farm Project was the carbon the carbon increases that we monitored measured on the project over the seven years of the project. So we have actual field data that shows what the gains would be. And I guess the surprise was that yes, grassland, putting grassland back on cornland does increase the carbon amounts, but it's a slow process. And so it doesn't happen immediately. It's gonna take decades and maybe even a good share of a century to get back to where we were a century ago yeah. or so. And uh, there may, may be ways of speeding that up, doing other things, but it's gonna be a slow process. But the accountability is the issue right now. Uh, every place that we would go has a slightly different carbon budget potential, mm. depending on the soils, depending on the rainfall, depending on the crop or what, what, is, what it's gaining the carbon and putting it into the soil and the management of that land. And so it's, it's not an easy thing to figure out. So somebody's gonna have to figure out, given all these different places, what is the amount of carbon that could, could potentially be stored by somebody that's uh, that wants to start that okay. process out? So, so we talked about the different revenues. We talked about native seed, grass-fed beef, some hay forage. Was that being done on the entire 500 acres, or did you guys have that split out? And then, of all those, um, I know it varies by year because you could have one year that's maybe a drought and the grass production isn't as high, or something but is there one that was more consistently profitable than than the others was could you always get money for native seed or grass-fed beef or was there con some, some consistency there uh the 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 seed sales were probably the most profitable 
Now the seed market isn't very deep. So if you had hundreds of prairie farms uh, selling seed, you might see a price drop and there'd be less income. So that one, it would not be a major one unless we're in a, in a state where we're really like a big CRP program where we're, we're adding a lot of grassland and need a lot of seed. Uh, the hay one was pretty good. This, the hay market's very deep. And uh, right now, I wish I had some hay. <laughs> uh, yeah. It's uh, selling, would be selling for $120 a ton for probably prairie hay, I would think. Wow. You know, I think it's more than 200 or 250 for uh, other, you know, uh, more nutritious hay. There so, you go, all you listeners out there. If you got yeah, some hay. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> so so that, that's a deep market. And that one, uh, that one was, was a pretty good market for us. The grass-fed beef market... Um, was was quite good. I mean, I I never had somebody come back and tell me, boy, I didn't like that. It, it tasted too much like I don't know, deer's venison or it was something like that. Or they didn't like it. Nobody ever. They all loved it and came that. back for more. So that that was good. Uh, the price you can charge, of course, because you're dealing with a, a economy of scale problem here. CAFOs with thousands of animals can produce a pound of meat cheaper than you can with a few hundred or fewer animals in, in one spot. So yeah. you can't you can't make up for that. So you have to charge more. And uh, how much are more are people willing to pay for a higher quality uh, meat and for having cattle on a grassland instead of having cattle in the CAFOs? So yeah. if you think a little bit about the cow and the conditions that are there is another animal welfare kinds of issues are there too. So I would say that we probably would have need to charge more than we did if we were trying to bump up the profitability. So we sold everything that we produced, and uh, but we probably would have had to bump it up. And I don't know if that would have really affected our, our sales or not. But that's what I'm saying. We need more people to try these things and in their own ways of trying them. And uh, one, one experiment, we learned a lot, but it's not... You can't learn everything in one experiment. So I'm encouraging people to do more of the prairie farm type experiments or even on their own farms to try different things out to see what works. And and there are people doing that now. Uh, but those those are the three markets. And um, and I think they showed that there's good potential here. Yeah. There's, there's much more potential. I don't think... I think people would have thought you guys are crazy to do something like this. I mean, you're not going to make any money. How are you going to sell that hay for? for how are you going to make any money on that farm? Well, it, you can actually do it. Again, it's not a get-rich-quick scheme. You have to work at it, like you yeah. do with making money anywhere. And so, it's but it can be done. And there's a, there's a there's a good reason to to take it to the next level, shall we say? Yeah. Well, shoot, I just bought. Uh... Some grass-fed bison the other day, ten dollars I paid for a pound, yeah. and but it was delicious, oh, you know. Yes. And yes. and even you go, you drive through Minneapolis or some of those suburbs. There's organic grocery stores where they're only selling organic meat, mm -hmm. organic chips, and um, so I mean I think that market's just continually expanding, and uh, if people can get into that, like you said, and expand, and, and more people get into that, I think you can charge a little bit more because I think mm -hmm. people are willing to willing to pay for it. Um, one of the other things I, I know you mentioned earlier to me and was this biofuel feedstock, and I know you tried to work that out with uh, the project, but at the time there wasn't a market for that. So uh, is there a market for that now, and, and why wasn't there a market for that during the project? Uh, we were funded uh, 
by the Department of Energy to see how much feedstock, they call it, uh, we could produce on this farm. And so what the cost would be to produce feedstock for this. If we're going to have a, uh, a market for ethanol uh, or for biofuels in general, and there's a couple ways of course of doing this, uh, what is it going to, what, what will it cost? Will it be competitive with gasoline? Well, the only way you know that is to, is to see how much you can produce and what the quality is. And Poet was very interested in this back in the day when we were doing our project. They came to our, our farm, took samples from all sorts of different plant communities, and then looked at the potential. And the potential is high, 110 to 130 gallons per ton, uh, ethanol per ton of hay uh, potential. So you need the, but you need the microbes to do it, uh, and they didn't have those yet. And you need the feedstock, and we didn't have that. There's not much in the landscape, but there was a lot of corn. And so we could take corn and do this thing with for ethanol, and, and uh, we didn't have the feedstock available for grassland. If we had, then of course the, the environmental impact would have been much less, negative impact would have been much less if we could have done it with grassland rather than in cornfields. But corn is where it, where it started and where it still is. And I don't think it's going to change um, anytime soon, but we do know a lot about it. We know what the numbers are now. And if, and if somebody wants to switch into that, you won't need an awful lot of research. And I would also say there's still research going on uh, at SDSU looking at, at biofuel from grassland. So it's not, the idea is still, it's still a germ of the idea there. And it could turn into something in the future, uh, depending on where we end up with uh, carbon credits and, and all of these things. So. so you have all these methods of, you know, making money from this tall grass prairie, these perennial crops. Um, I know you talked about in the film, you, you guys had a medium household income that was generated from throughout this project. So you guys made a certain amount of money and... And it was pretty comparable to other jobs that, let's say, I would take or, or someone else would take. So maybe talk about the, the income you generated, the net, net and gross profit. Mm -hmm. uh, this farm, uh, in the last uh, three or four years of our project, because it does take a few years to get up to speed, uh, averaging the last three or four years, uh, the net income was about $60,000 per year. So that means that a, a farm uh, where the farmer owns his land or her land uh, and they do their own labor, that would be the income that they would have, the net income that they could use uh, for whatever they needed. That would be their source of, of money. Yeah. And that's uh, $15,000 above the average South Dakota uh, income, family income. So it's not bad. And that's, and that's the first, our first try at it. I mean, I th I still think that you know, there's a lot of a lot of potential for that to be a higher number yeah. uh, by doing more things and and being. I mean, we did this. We we were we were doing the instead of just talking the talk, we were walking the walk here for sure. But we we were not ourselves farmers that were earning an income. We we received no income from this. We worked at SDSU and we weren't the recipients of this. But if 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 the farm had been taken over by one person and had done it this that way, that would have been their income. So, that's that's a a, a number that's uh, worth 
worth uh, contemplating and thinking that this has potential. Um, the input, uh, it's, it's interesting because the gross in income from the farm was way less than the gross income had it been corn and soybeans. But when you subtract out the costs of income, the input costs, our input costs were only about a third of what it would have been for the typical corn and soybean farm. So the net difference between uh, those two numbers is a little bit better for our project than, than for, for another. And it seemed like uh, if the corn prices got above 450 uh, a bushel, then the corn did a little bit better than the grass. But when you were down below that number, and of course we were for quite a few years previously, then the grass was doing better than the corn. And so uh, there is a, there's a, an interesting break point there. Now, now corn is way higher. So I would guess that in a comparable, you'd be doing a little bit better as a corn farmer, but for five, the five years before that, you would have probably done better as a grass farmer. Yeah. But in the long term, I think uh, the, 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 the grassland is a competitive uh, option, is what I would say. Now, remember that, that the grassland system is a perennial system. So these grasses are planted once, and if they do well and you manage them properly, they can last for 10 or 20 or 30 years. The same plants you planted 30 years ago can still be uh, what you're getting your income from. And that means that you don't have to do the spring planting thing every year. And that's, that's a difficult, very difficult thing for farmers. I know there's a lot of angst when it's too wet or too dry or too cold and you can't get your crop in when you'd like to get it in. That's, that means you have a shorter growing season and so on and so on. But with the perennial system, your grass comes up every year just like it does in your lawn. And if you take good care of it, it'll be there. And the costs, and, and therefore, the costs of planting, which are considerable, uh, are zero, uh, which does help your bottom line, of course. Yeah. And you talk about just monitoring it and managing it. Um, so historically, that the fires came through every three to five years, and mm -hmm. there was bison on the landscape grazing. So if we can continue that or have cattle mm -hmm. that's managed properly, I mean, we can really keep the biodiversity on the landscape. and. Mm -hmm. Um, if we don't have any of that, and let's say you do go to this perennial farm, but you just let it go, that's when smooth brome starts to take over, mm -hmm. and eastern red cedar comes in, and then your grassland really degrades, and, and you know you can't generate that income versus if you really take care of it and manage it, but still that you're not generating or putting out those input costs like you would for a corn and soybean rotation every year. Mm -hmm. And so and then you mentioned um, sixty thousand dollars. That was six, seven, eight years ago. So now we'd probably be topping on some more money on top of that. So maybe reaching seventy, seventy-five thousand dollars for a, a net income, which is, I mean, that's very good mm -hmm. in comparison to other jobs in South Dakota. Yeah, and it's, uh, it's I'm sure not, not the high, as high as it could be, depending on other circumstances. Uh, so it's not necessarily a ceiling by any means. Yeah. Uh, and I suppose it maybe wouldn't be a floor either. It does depend where you're doing this. You know, we do, we do the tall grass prairie in eastern South Dakota, which is a higher rainfall area. So as you go farther west, of course, you're going to have drier conditions on average, and uh, the income potential will change. So uh, it'd be nice to do have, have a prairie farm out at uh, Chamberlain or uh, 
maybe in uh, Mitchell, yeah. and see what's something about the gradient. But right now, we, we did our study in a higher rainfall area of, of near Sioux Falls. Yeah. Uh, so one of the things, you, again, you just mentioned was uh, during the establishment years, you know, you're, you're generating or you're putting out the input for perennial grass. You're doing it that one time. Um, and then for corn and soybeans, you're doing it every year. Um, well, why the stand establishes for this perennial grassland, because if anyone listening knows about prairie, it takes a few years to establish and really be, you know, a nice, healthy stand. So um, would it be best if maybe a landowner converted half their land at once, or is it not, not beneficial mm -hmm. to convert it all at once, or, or how would that work? Because um, I know, again, you just talked about how corn's up for five years, corn prices are high for five years, then it dips down. So maybe it's best to have, let's say you have 500 acres like your prairie farm project. Maybe we have half of that in perennial grass and half of it still in a corn and soybean rotation, but maybe we're doing switchgrass or just rotating them or, or something like that. Mm -hmm. But how could landowners, um, instead of converting it all to native grasses, what, what else could be done to, to offset that? Well, I think the um, if you wanted to convert a, a farm, this would probably be a smaller farm entirely to grassland like we did on the experiment, then you'd want to do it in stages. So you would start with maybe a fourth of it. If it's a 400 acre farm, you'd take 100 acres and convert that. And then your other three would be in traditional crops. And then you'd be down to two and then down to one and down to zero. And then you'd have it all established. And that would be a way of sort of uh, smoothing out the uh, the, the years, and I, that, I would certainly recommend that. And that's what we did. We didn't okay. plant all 400 acres in one setting. We yeah. did it over time. Now, the other approach that I think a lot of people favor would be uh, taking a farm. Almost all farms have uh, a, a range of soils and productivity conditions. And some have more marginal, what you might call marginal land, where it's not really very profitable in most years yep. to grow uh, corn and soybean on those acres. So we could divvy up your land into two types, the, that which would be for corn and soybeans, the higher productivity land, and then the other, which would be grassland. And I think the grassland would, would always produce for you. Yeah. Whereas the corn and soybeans on marginal land you're oftentimes losing money when the prices are low. So the grassland, you'd never have a ne negative. You'd always have a positive, unless something horrible happened. <laughs> I guess maybe you had a fire and an you know, a fire happened or some bad thing happened, but it's pretty hard. The grassland is very resilient and it doesn't, there's hardly anything that's gonna really knock it out. But that would be a way of divvying up the land and, and in some senses sort of, uh, uh, counterbalancing things that when grain prices are high, uh, you could tend to you know, lose a little on the, on the grassland. And then when the grain prices are low and the grasslands may be doing better, then you can, that'll counterbalance that yeah. effect. So that would, either one of those two ideas would, would work very well. The, uh, the first year of planting is what's called the weed stage. Uh, these plants are perennial, of course, but the first year they put most of their uh, work into roots because they've got to come up next year without seed. And so uh, we tend to look at those plantings and think they weren't successful because the plants we want are only a foot tall and the weeds are three feet tall. 
uh, well, the weeds are annual by and large. So the next year, the, the weeds are not so bad. And then the plants grow from a foot or two to five, six, seven, eight feet tall. So you see the next year, you're feeling pretty good about it. But the first year, you're not sure that this is going to work at all. And so, but that's the, that's a little thing you have to sort of get, get used to with this. But by the year three, that's when you've probably reached your sort of uh, optimal or close to maximum production. Yeah. So the first year, you know, I think I mentioned you can, maybe you would, uh, with all the weed stage, you'd probably have a lot of pheasants. And if you restored wetlands and you also had some, a lot of weeds, you'd also have waterfowl. So you could maybe get some income from, from that the first year. And then the second year, you'll get some income from your, your grass crops. And then the third year, you're up to up to full full force. You're in full full capacity by the third year. Yeah. So. And you guys put out some publications on this on this project as well, too, that some audience members or who's ever listening could go read and, and learn more about this. Yeah, our website, which is ecosunprairiefarms.org, uh, has a media section to it, and it will it has the, the papers that we produce. There's five or six papers, and there's a long report, almost a 100-page report that goes through everything, the good, the bad, and the ugly uh, <laughs> uh, there. It's, it's, it's not all... There's always some disappointments in any kind of project and research. Things you thought were going to work didn't work, and other things that you didn't think would work that actually did. So that's why we do these things, and that should help the the, uh, the the farmer out eventually. We have gone through all the trouble, and and we can give good advice about what's going to work. Yeah. So those reports are available on on that site, and uh, and it's uh, that was our intention was to leave a legacy of that project in print. Yeah, and you guys proved some valuable things about generating income from grasslands. We did, and uh, and we did it as peer-reviewed information. So people are—they're pretty tough. These reviewers are pretty tough on you. You know, <laughs> they don't—you just can't say stuff. You have to prove it, right? So we yeah. had to prove it. And uh, if you couldn't, if you weren't proving it, you better take it out. And so we went through that process of peer review, and that's not so common. In a lot of this work there's a lot of work that comes out in reports and so on and i found this and i found that and so on but not really a peer-reviewed so it's all this stuff has been peer-reviewed doesn't mean it's perfect but it's as good as we can make it and the reviewers uh make sure of that yeah so well do you have anything else to add about the prairie farm project before we jump into the next deal um i just i, I just think it's it's so amazing if, if you really want to know what, what the benefit is here between um, more traditional crops and and grassland crops. And if you had a, two places to walk to, they could even be side by side. One would be a, a fairly rich, diverse prairie of the type that we can produce. Uh, and a cornfield or a soybean field. And I'm not, I mean, I people make their living on corn and soybeans. And my family has done it for a hundred years. So, but, I think we need a balance here, and and uh, we can't we can't have all all of our land can't be in crops. Yeah, there's too many other benefits that that we get from grassland. We have to find a balance there. But you walk through that on a on a morning or an evening, and you've got a few wetlands you've restored, and you've got the grassland restored, and you look at insects, you're looking for grassland birds, you're you're looking for uh, larger wildlife, and uh, it, it, pheasants and all these kinds of things. And, and thinking about uh, the water and how it percolates in and doesn't run off and the carbon being stored and uh, the streams down the, the streams down gradient of you are better off because of it and then go to the cornfield 
and it's pretty quiet. There's not much noise. Yeah. There aren't many insects. There aren't many birds, if any. And that that difference tells you this is something that we we need to balance. We need more of this. We yeah. need more of the grassland. And uh, we probably have gone too far in the wrong direction and uh, find a better balance, which I think it's, it's better for the farmer as well. If we can... If we can find out ways of making good income from grassland, and they're doing pretty well on the cropland as well as they can do, and if we can add that into the farm income, and to the resilience, and to the the benefits to society downstream, boy, that's a that's a big deal. Yeah. That that that's a huge contribution to uh, to doing better at our land use. Yeah. So. And, I mean, you talk about pheasants and insects. Pheasant hunting in South Dakota is so big. I mean, it's a state bird. It generates a ton of revenue for the state of South Dakota. And, I mean, when I first came hunting here when I was about 10 years old near Highmore, South Dakota, um, in about 2005, I mean, there was pheasants everywhere. And now you now you look at it, and you really do need to work for the birds. And, like you said, maybe we've gone too far, and um, our bird numbers have declined, our grassland dependent bird species, bobolinks, meadowlarks, they're declining at a constant rate. So making that, uh, you know, work together with the farmers, work together with the environmentalists and, and get more tall grass prairie back on the landscape, I think is huge. So you guys proved it with the, with the Prairie Farm Project um, throughout your six, seven years doing that. And yeah, that's great research for Eastern South Dakota. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, uh, there's a lot of data that that's pretty clear that the results show that we need a balance between uh, the natural habitat and uh, our agronomic uh, uh, operations, and it's it's not that hard to figure out. There's enough examples that uh, you can see. When I, for example, when I was uh, 10 years old, 1956, I was, that was my first hunting year. That was the start of the soil bank, which was the first CRP type yeah. program. And a lot of land went, it went, uh, it was abandoned. There wasn't much planted actually. It was just sort of abandoned. So it went to weeds and oh boy, the pheasants <laughs> like that. So we had incredible pheasant hunting. I think 11, 12 million birds in those days. Oh my gosh. So, so you can see, and now with CRP, we've seen the big increases in CRP are also correlate to the pheasant numbers. So you can see this balance that, that is there. And it's not a mystery, really. Yeah. And now you can argue about how much and who should pay and how long it should be held in, in, in uh, CRP and so on. But uh, as far as the result you're going to get, uh, I think it's pretty obvious yeah. what, what needs to be done. Well, great. Uh, let's wrap up the Prairie Farm Project and our first episode of the Tallgrass Talk. And I am the host, Luke Zilverberg. And next time on the Tallgrass Talk, we're also going to have Carter Johnson back here to talk about EcoSun's newest project at Good Earth State Park down near Sioux Falls, South Dakota. And it's right on the Big Sioux River. And on the other side of the Big Sioux River is the Iowa side. So this is a very special project that EcoSun is working on. And uh, we're excited to have Carter back next time. Thank you. Thank you.